The 3CR Gardening Show is coming to you today from the Woi Wurrung Nation. We acknowledge the Wurundjeri people as the traditional owners of this land. We recognise the practices of care and cultivation of the land and waters by the First Peoples and pay our respects to their elders past and present. Wherever you are and wherever you garden, we encourage you to know whose land you're on. You are tuned in to the 3CR Gardening Show for another beautiful, albeit a little bit foggy, Sunday morning. My name is Chloe Foster and I'm your host for this morning. I'm very pleased to have two lovely people in the studio with me this morning. Stephen Wells, horticultural therapist, and Emmeline Bowman, landscape architect and boss lady at (laughs) STEM Landscape Architecture. Good morning, you two. Good morning, Chloe. Good morning. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I'm good. I went to – I did a little bit of garden stuff Enviro's stuff yesterday. I went to see the floating wetlands oh. in the Docklands and yes. around, well, the yep. Birrarung Floating Wetlands is yep. their name. What's it looking like now? Because it should be starting to, you know, go a bit dormant or is it still pretty green? So they're looking really good. One of them was only planted up about a month ago. Oh, okay. Yep. So there's three of them that have been installed as part of the um, Green Line city project that the city of Melbourne's doing to to green up this about 4k stretch along the Yarra mm-hmm. and two of them went in in December one of them is looking particularly well mm-hmm. the other one is it's look it's doing all right but the the one just that went in in March is is looking really well okay. it's still looking really well too Must be, um, it's still, it's still fresh warm. i mean we've had those yeah. really weird warm days last week yep. which were like even in the evening felt humid so yeah. i guess that keeps it going for a bit longer mm. yep. yeah the other ones that are right at the docklands near the bridge the pedestrian bridge going over so one of them is near uh it's called library on the dock which is the library in the um area of victoria harbour which is the harbour directly behind Dockland Stadium. Yep. 
Um, that that one's looking okay. It's been in since December. Then there's one near uh, what's it called? It's called Yarra's Edge. So it's downstream from the Pollywood side. Mm. Yes, on the on the and city on the opposite side of South Bank. Correct. Yep. 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 Uh, no, sorry, on the South Bank side, on right. the South Melbourne side. Yep. Yeah. Uh, that one is looking the best. So it's right near oh, yes. a footbridge. Yes, that's the one. The I'm going to be very um, ignorant here. I can't remember the name of the bridge, but it's the I one. Can't it's the, the snake, the, the eel bridge. Yes, yes, it is. Um, which I love. So that's a really that's cool why it sticks out. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I do believe I saw some further in the river on the city side. There's a couple right near the aquarium. Yes. Yeah, so that's what they call turning basin, which is where the ships used to turn when they would come up and yep. drop everyone off at Customs House. Yes. Uh, yeah, so that's the most recently installed one. Great, yes. Because I remember going on a walk with the Landscape Conference. Oh, yeah. And um, they were talking about, we, we saw those ones near the Eelbridge. Yeah. Um, and yeah, hearing a bit more history about the, the, uh, or the, the context of why they wanted to put them in and back in as well, mm. and where the, the river... Uh, edge used to be with those la- the last two you're talking about. Yeah, they've there's three different plant palettes that they've used for the three different sites, and the plant palettes represent sort of ve- different veg- the different vegetation classes that uh, used to grow along the Yarra River. Mm. So um, you know, sort of salt marshy, like there's salt bush growing yeah. in there. They I, haven't all... at, I haven't seen them. I saw the one with the lithrum and yeah. had milfoil and all those sort of things. Yes. Mm. It's it's really it's really interesting because they're growing the substrate they're growing in is a layer of scoria and mulch on top. Mm. And they've the plants have been planted into the scoria and then they're growing in yeah. the water. Yeah. yeah. And there's salt bush there. Mm. All the like, there's the aquatic, there's aquatic grasses and rushes like juncus and and carex. Yes, yeah, yep. they but, do particularly well in a scoria or rock base, like because yeah. when we, if you want like a really good filtration or a clean filtration within water, you should put it in rock. But yeah. I always put it in soil because I love the the milfoils and that because they like the sediment. Yeah, but they could play with that. Yeah, oh, there's. I know there's a few companies that are sort of competing with each other to, with the technology for these right. sort of um, green infrastructure projects. Mm. Uh, one of the things that got me really excited. So the grasses were really fantastic to see, and I've assumed that I just assumed that that's what they'd be completely made out of. Mm. But in two of the wetlands. Uh, sorry, sorry, at two sites, they have these raised planters, and they're probably 30 centimetres max. And they're planted in Banksia integrifolia. What? Yeah. And the Banksia integrifolia was in, so the coastal Banksia, uh, that was in, it's at the Yarra's Edge and the Turning Basin one near the aquarium. Yeah. In the raised planter, and the, ter- um, the Yarra Edge one, which is looking which is the one that's looking the absolute best. So, like, if you're going to go check these out, go to Yarra's Edge. Um, it's got so much new growth on it and it is absolutely bursting. I reckon they probably put it in, you know, something around a six-inch pot size or something. Okay. It looks like, I mean, I was 20 metres away, but it, I had binoculars. <laughs> About 20 <laughs> centimetres new growth on it. Okay. They're really flourishing. Like, the leaves are out 
They're not curled up. Yeah, right. They're not drooping down. And how? And you're saying they've they've been planted on the floating in a raised planter in a raised planter on yep. the island. So yep. they're sort of like it's a wicking. Yeah. It's sort of wicking. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. So the yeah. So the as far as the shrub layer goes, which mm. I didn't expect to see a shrub layer, yep. they're looking really good. The mm. other sh- larger shrubs that they've put in is a Leucopogon parva florus, mm. which is a coastal one of the coastal heaths, mm. which grows in dunes along yeah. Port Phillip Sandy. Bay. Sandy. Yep. Sandy. Not necessarily in water spots. Yeah, anyway, it was looking I good I need to too. have a look at you. This. Need to check it out. Yeah, I do. I need to get out more. And, and <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what have you been doing with your time? Yeah. Oh, I did a biofertilization course. Hey, we'll was... get to that in a minute. Okay, yeah. I'll tell you about the last plant. Okay. Was it? Um, it was a, a Melaleuca squarosa, oh, I yeah. think. So obviously, yeah, the Melaleucas would, would yeah, absolutely right. love growing in the water. It. But the, the plant roots have been directly popped into the scoria, and. Yeah. And it's looking really good. It's a one-year trial that they're doing. Okay. Yep. They ran a free – City of Melbourne ran a free tour yesterday and one of the ecologists that is uh, monitoring the sites for the next 12 months and has been monitoring the sites for the last 12 months before they go in, um, Jacinta Humphreys, her name is a PhD student and ecologist, um, has been monitoring to see what bird life and other animal life – she sounds cool. She is yeah. cool, actually. <laughs> She's yeah. She really knows her stuff. Yeah, nice. um, a fantastic tour that the city organised. Mm-hmm. There's about twenty people there, and everyone was really engaged. It was fantastic. Yeah. Oh. I think it's great. Like the fact that it's a pilot, because what that means is there's a lot of research that goes into the background of that. Mm. But it's also a pilot to go. Well, we are wanting to see what works, and that it doesn't have to always be everything works. But you want it to be successful, so that's where the background research has come in and the knowledge and the expertise. Mm. But it's also about going, well, we thought this would work. Yeah. It didn't do as well or it did better or, you know, all those kind of processes that come out of pilots mm. and research. Yeah. Um, so, which is not often understood by those that just walk past and see something like mm. this and go, mm. their, their initial thoughts might be, oh, that doesn't look like it's working. Or if it's one or two things haven't done as well, but mm. not understand that actually that's part of the process or, mm. or maybe part of the process. Um, and it's about knowing, well, let's see what does work. We've got a fair idea that it's going to, but let's see what responds. Or let's, and part of the research, as you're saying, is also then about what comes in. Mm. Yeah. Who visits. Yeah. And it, it's so exciting because, you know, Australian flora especially, like we – we're still learning so much, and but it's exciting because you have the opportunity compared to other countries that have, you know, they've established a really great horticultural bank. Mm. To learn about the plants that we have here is so, I don't know, I find it so exciting because it's yeah. like the discovery. Yeah. We get to do that. A lot of it's still yeah. new information. So new. Yeah. yeah. And I, what I find really interesting with the green infrastructure project is there's a lot of work going in or research going into how Indigenous plants in whatever region the project mm-hmm. is going into, how they adapt to these sort of new high-tech mm. situations. And if they're provided with the conditions that they need, the microclimate conditions that they need, they're doing really well. Yeah. yeah. Well, go, go, oh, sorry. Sorry. No, I was going to say, well, just to mimic those wetlands, I mean, most of Melbourne was consistent. Like, it, we had so many wetlands before yeah. they all disappeared. So the variations of how these plants can grow in these mm. situations, you know, you, it 
it's great because we're learning. I mean, there used to be thickets of melaleuca all the way through. Mm. And, you know, they can be from dry conditions up into very wet, boggy situations. Mm. So, I mean, they're experimenting with what used to be here once. Yeah. Yeah. And just sort of applying it in a very different way. But, yeah, yeah. I really hope they work. It's not – they're not big enough to have an impact on the nutrient levels Mm. and the pollution levels in the water – the, the main um, objective of these floating wetlands at the moment is to provide habitat mm. for the yep. animals, for, for urban animals. Rakali. Well, that's there. Someone in the group yesterday said she'd seen a mm. Rakali hanging around um, Victoria Harbour. Good. And Jacinda, who's been surveying the area, said they're hoping to see a Rakali mm. get into the floating wetlands and, you know, do its thing. She hasn't seen it yet, though. Okay. Um, and if anyone does see one, like take a photo and log it on iNaturalist. So they're really relying on citizen citizen science, yeah. uh, collect you know data collection to help out with these floating wetlands. So yep. if you live around the docklands or you work around there, and you know stop by for lunch, just look at it. And if you see anything interesting, snap a photo and, and pop it up to iNaturalist because they. You know, they need that data. Yeah. That's exciting. And, it again, I, I, I spoke briefly because it was Rakali Day once when I was on the radio, but for anyone who doesn't know what a Rakali looks yeah. like, they they are called the Australian otter. It used to be called the water rat, but they're larger. They kind of remind me of they've got a um, kind of like a ringtail possum tail. There's a little white tip on the end of the tail, and that is the most telltale sign. They're a more rounded creature with a rounded head, and I would say, like... Got my hands measuring here. I would say the animal was between thirty-five and forty centimeters long. It looks like a big possum that size. It does. It it looks. Mm. It's about the size of a ringtail, really. Mm. Yep. And imagine like a ringtail, but more with a a rounded otterish head. Yeah. And yep. I think they're gorgeous. I love them. I think. I think so it's good that we're moving away from the water rat name. Yes. Yes. Yeah, that's. Rikali is. Uh, yeah. Kind of rolls off the tongue nice. Yeah. Kylie. <laughs> it's very nice. It was super cute. There's these, they've made these little ramps oh. so that um, bird uh, oh. ducks can have something to sort of land on but then enter. That is so good. And they're so thought out. There's, there's um, pole things to oh. perch. There's little pool... Um, yeah, sort of in the middle of the wetland, there's another, there's an open area of water for so animals good. that might want to scoot in and, and slide along. Like they're very, they've, as far as like habitat garden goes, mm. where you sort of consider what animals you want to attract, they've really thought about, well, what animals do we want to see here? Mm. What do they need? And how can we provide that in this sort of fantastic, highly designed way? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, was, cool. Yeah, really impressive. And the other great thing that's come to mind is that, like, similarly, we've got these in the botanic gardens in different areas. Yeah. But here's being tri- it's being used and trialled, and the intent is for it to have a different feel in that part of the Yarra. Mm. Whereas at the botanic gardens, it's in the the, the lakes and the Guilfoyles um, volcano. Yeah. So it's a different, probably different planting, I imagine. Yes. Um, and a different intent, which is good. Yeah, a very um, Indigenous planting in the floating yep. wetlands, whereas I think with the botanic gardens there's more of an aquatic yep. flora. Oh, they've got, I know they've got crinums, which is a native lily mm. in there, but it's not. I don't think crinum is Indigenous to around here. No, I think it's like New South Wales, isn't it? Yeah, I think so, yes. Yeah. But 
as yeah, slightly different objective. Yeah, there is. I think they wanted to clean more the water. Seen. The other thing is, it's you know, it's now in a more um, overtly public space yeah. as well. Yeah. So a lot more people are going, oh, what's that? That yeah. may not be the type of people that would meander through the Botanic yeah. Gardens or have been there. So it's um, from that point of view, it's interesting as well. Yeah, and the garden, in those spaces in the gardens are more an enclosed environment. So as far as like weed potential goes for those species, it's a bit more yep. manageable. Yep. Whereas in the Yarra, I, I have, I'm going to make an assumption that they would, thinking a quite a fair bit about, you know, weed potential oh, of the plants that they yeah, put into these. Mm. And if they're putting in Indigenous species, well, then there's, you know, they probably would be happy for them to start taking over somehow. Yeah. But hopefully yeah. we start seeing – well, not hopefully. I think we will start seeing more of these floating wetland installations um, yeah. along the Yarra and in Melbourne and in and in other parts of the Yarra throughout – Greater Melbourne mm. too. That's good. Well, that was a good outing for you. It was and a really a good lovely, outing. Really good. Um, uh, well, the seeing things at the beginning stage is a really exciting thing, I think. So yeah. that's why I was, has a hesitation of what I was going to say then. But um, <laughs> yeah, it's really good to get out and see them mm. and to understand them from the early stages rather yeah. than. Uh, and to then be able to be telling the stories and yeah. sharing about it. Yeah, I took some photos, so I'll send them through to Liz and get her to pop them up onto um, the socials. But, yeah, if you work in the area or if you want to go into the city, um, just as, you know, as a side note, we've, um, at, at, with one of our diploma classes this year, we've, been, we've taken on a green infrastructure track mm. um, with, with, this, with a particular unit and, and – We've been focusing on the floating wetlands, but also having we've also been through the CBD to look at the other projects that City of Melbourne have done yep. to um, green the city. And it's not they've moved away from the urban forest strategy to this sort of urban greening and less mm. about let's plant all the trees because mm. that'll save the planet. Mm. To well, okay, well, what used to be here. How can we replicate that and try to yep. restore that somehow with ground covers, aquatic plants, you know, all the smaller things and not just the trees. Mm. Yep. So, yeah, there's some pretty cool... Yeah, there's a lot of interesting stuff. Stuff. A lot of interesting projects. <laughs> Sorry, uh, I don't want to downplay it, but a lot of interesting projects that have happened over... And that walk that I did as part of the Australian Landscape Conference was it was a good 8K walk. But, um, right, it was also really interesting to hear uh, from a whole lot of different areas what has happened, what is planning to be happened, mm-hmm. and, and what are some of the things that when myself, you know, as we all do, just go straight past and go, yeah. oh, yeah, that's a nice big tree yeah. or that's a nice big bit of a garden bed, but don't really know the, the, that there is a bigger plan yeah. and to understand that. Because there has been a lot that's happened over the last decades, 30, 40 years um, around Melbourne that's changed. Yeah. That was a fascinating talk, wasn't it? Mm. Yeah. One of the ladies that I met yesterday has co-authored a paper with Jacinta Humphreys, who uh, ran the tour. Yep. Um, she works in town planning at the, and lectures at the University of Melbourne. Um, they've just, they've they wrote a paper called "A Decade of Nature" on the sort of evolution of this greening the city that City of Melbourne's been doing and moving from Brilliant. the urban tree strategy mm. to this greening city. Greening Cities project. Yep. What are some of the other sites that you went to on that walk? I'm putting you on the spot. No, um, I'm checking my memory. So we went we <laughs> went through South Bank, and there's a couple. Um, I'm 
not good at names of streets. So, yeah. um, <laughs> but there were some uh, public space that were normally footpaths or mm-hmm. are footpaths, but they've made them um, to be more pocket parks as well. But then yeah. there's a diversity of plantings and um, it, the one in particularly was the rock play space, okay, um, which is really cool. And I'll during the process of this, I'll check the name of it again. <laughs> um, but we walked from there and then we ended up going all the way over, over to um, near the tennis centre um, and then up into Fitzroy Gardens. Oh, um, yeah. So there was some real diversity and through past the MCG and learnt about, you know, all the, the aspects of what's happening with the, the tree management there and the water um, storing and water capturing and how that gets reused. Yeah. Um, so quite a diverse... A um, lot of projects, and yeah. obviously coming past Birurungma as well. Did you? Oh no, I, I don't know whether you went to this in the same day, but I saw you made a post on Instagram recently of Guildford Place, Guildford Lane. Guildford Lane, yes. Guildford Lane. So that was part of the. No, um, that wasn't. That was something that I'd heard about for ages. No, it was a part of the. It was probably done about ten years ago now. The city of Melbourne. Oh, it is was their one project, of their yes. greening Absolutely, it wasn't part of the tour, but right, it was okay. um, something that I'd heard about for years. Yeah. And went. I must get there. And I was like, right, I'm there in the city. I am going. I'm yeah. going now. Come on, Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> that's been one of the um, laneway greening projects that's been very, very successful. It is, and I. Still, learn, still to learn more about it, but um, with the wonders of posting something, um, there were others that added information about it, which mm-hmm. was really interesting because, yes, I don't think it was started off as a isn't this wonderful um, a- activity, mm. but it evolved into a wonderful yeah. uh, aspect of uh, accepting what it was and what then people have added personality and character to to have the wonderful achievement of it is now. So it's it's. Yeah, definitely part of the City of Melbourne's yeah. um, work, yeah. um, but the origins of it were a little different as well. Um, but it's a cool little spot, and you yeah. go, it was really interesting, because I spent the time, like I walked in and went, oh, yeah, this is cool, but went, oh, yeah, there's some pretty good standard plants in there, which then you realise, you stop and think a bit more about that, and go, well, that has to be the reason. It's got to be good, hardy, tough plants, and that's the environment. But then as I... <coughs> pushed against my let's just have a look and a walk I stopped and slowed and saw the little nuances the little mm. bits of the little plants the interesting aspects of the door entries the art some of the murals and all those aspects that add the richness of the character to a space mm. and it was like wow this is pretty cool where else can we do this oh, yeah. can I do this at work can I do this at <laughs> home like what am I yeah so that's what I really enjoyed yeah that process of immersing yourself like you were describing with yeah. going um, and seeing the wetland projects when you immerse yourself into something and learn a bit more about it mm. and just stop and slow you go oh wow this is actually a lot more to it yeah it makes me want to um, buy a Boston Ivy and grow it up the wall every wall of my house <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when I see those particularly Guildford Lane I mean it's doing yep. really well yeah and it's, it's pretty harsh in there as in yeah. so to explain that better you know it's a tight street so there's not a lot of direct intense sunlight all the time so, I, think, um, I think it runs east-west, Guildford Lane. Yeah, that rings a bell. Which yep. means it would probably get a decent amount of hot summer mm. westerlies. Yep. Which would be pretty harsh yeah. for them. And some of those and those winds that come through the city sometimes yeah, yeah, too. Yeah, roars through. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's finding pockets or niches and working out 
what can we do here? Mm. Where, wherever they may be. There's always a spot for there a plant. Is. <laughs> <laughs> and what was this biofertilization? Biofertilization course, course that you yeah. did. Well, it was out towards um, Torquay area and it was on a big farmland and it was this guy called David and he was running the course through a land care operation and um, he was going through um, different recipes for biofertilization. So for those who don't know what that is, it's putting, you're creating like a, a living culture and um, the recipe can be made. There's many different ones, but mm. the one that we ended up making was um, with a milk solid, molasses, water um, and uh, a rice. And you put it in a container for about a month you put it on the ground and the thing that it does, does is... Does it ferment for a month? It does ferment. Yeah. And then when you put it on the ground, what happens is this living organism or like a yogurt culture in a way, it improves the plant's capability to absorb nutrients. And what it also does, it sort of helps the soil and it eliminates a lot of bad things too, like your red-legged earth mites and things like that. And um, basically... The guy hosting it was saying a lot of the products that you buy off the counter, like your sea soul, Charlie Carp, it's all not, they're not that good anymore. Mm. So a lot of them, Charlie Carp, for example, really there's only 1% carp in it now, now that it's been bought out and they just fill it with urea. Um, it, he went through like every single product and it was like mind blowing. It was almost like, I feel bad like talking about it at the moment, but it was like <laughs> basically most of the products on the market are not and they're watered down. Are really watered down. Yeah. They still obviously help, but not to the point of, you know, what they used to yeah. be when they were in their infancy. Yeah. But um yeah, we were given all these different recipes for um different applications depending on what you wanted to use. In this sense it was for um quite uh large scale like agricultural operations. So I was asking things, you know, more catered to or tailored to what we do. And it was it was great because he's like, you can still do all this, but what you should do is you just grab a, a bit of soil from the area and pop that into the mix. Yeah. So you're bringing in and stimulating those fungies or, you know, the, that sort of um, bacteria content that's local yep. and bringing that into the soils. Sort of like giant lab tissue culture yeah. stuff on a different scale. Yeah. But um, it in like, the backyard. Yeah, but it was it was so good. Yeah. And we got all these different recipes. There was, you know, there was there was ones that you could even use like, you know, fermented meats and <laughs> things oh, like wow. that. Like it was yeah, full on. But the farm that we visited was like a two thousand acre farm and um they they started using it like on large scale because it's just it's it, it's so much better than even fertilizers. They're like, forget it. Like we're wow. not buying these agricultural fertilizers anymore. So they had these vats and um, one of the farmers said he literally, this is going to sound a bit yucky, but he went to the abattoirs and he was using the um, the stomach contents. Um, I think it was, I can't remember the name of it. It's called score. No, I'm not even going to say. It's got a name. But he was getting that in its, you know, fermented grass material. Let's call it haggis. Haggis. That's a very, you got the haggis. <laughs> Anyway, he put he put that in a in a vat with molasses, all these sort of things, churning it. Um, they had obviously a, a hard thing with the fibrous material, so that was extracted, 
and then it was used as like a yeah a um, liquid put into different vats, different um, stages of fermentation, put on their paddocks, and you could see the paddocks were just growing beautifully. They had even trialled it where they spread it and pest species of insects completely gone. And it was just, yeah, the life of the plants were just, they were just so healthy. Wow. As, yeah. How did you find out about this well, I, I have a wonderful client turned friend and we did a project up at Parapara. Um, it was a farm rehabilitation proj- project. Um, we um, redid the dams and all those sort of things to improve the water quality. And, um, yeah, Beck was like, I'm going to do this course because we were going to go and do a little bit of maintenance up there. And um, she's like, I'm going to do this course. And I was like, oh love to do this yeah it's a three mm. hour well it's two and a half hour drive mm. fine we'll go there mm. and then as we got there poor Beck, she got COVID she's like I'm not going I'm like oh, that's all right we'll just go <laughs> but it was it was fantastic there was just wonderful people like um a lot of farmers there yep. um and the fact that they're used and learning these processes is just so great mm. um and a really lovely uh, what, what was really nice was there was just a complete um, balance of gender as well, which I haven't really seen before because mm-hmm. when they used to do land care back at home, it was usually swayed certain genders. <laughs> um, so this is really changing. Um, but the the evidence is coming out now that they're just like, these these things work and they're so cheap. Like yeah. you can literally have a bottle of milk, you can have some sugars and some rice, make this – concentrate because they're concentrations if you had a litre you can spread it on nearly an acre yeah like it's it's so cost effective it was just yeah it was fantastic I learned a lot but yeah I was really surprised about the products that you buy off the shelves yeah it was very much like oh they're not as good as what they say they are and if they say they're like power feed or the more words they use (laughs) it's the worse it is oh no yeah Great. Yeah. So, look, just compost and put your own compost on your That's garden. That's it. No, it's true. Use <laughs> yeah. your own compost. And I have heard of people using yeah. molasses solutions mm. before. Molasses has been used for things like for yeah decades. Eons. Yes. I remember Eons. hearing my dad talk about it. Yeah. Being on a market garden. Mm. Yeah. So yeah. Step it back to slightly natural products. <laughs> Sustainable Gardening Australia. I I haven't got the full story in my head because I just saw a very quick um, post late last night sustainable gardening australia on their website have just released um, a breakdown of a lot of gardening products that you can buy and the effects that it has on um animals and the environment Mm -hmm. um so that might be a place to start if people want to get a little bit more information on their products yeah um do you have a website or something this no this was like i said it was through land care okay um we'll become a land care member yeah well yeah really there is, I I really need to stress how wonderful the land care um, facilities like what they provide. Yeah, there are such really educated people, a diverse range of subjects, and you know I find like back home we had a really young group of people who were really interested in land care, and that's not usually what you see. Mm. Um, so for any younger, it's all ages. But go to your land care and, you know, every week they'll sort of let you know what's sort of happening if something interests you. Mm. But it's really good to get involved because you're sort of with a community. 
You're learning things about your environment. It could be anything. It could be soils. It could be plants. It could be waterways. It can be anything, fertilisers. Mm. Um, you can cater it and, and help out, plant a tree. We've, like, did some planting along, like, a rail trail. Like, it's just it's really great. And yeah. everyone should sort of get involved because it's really, really rewarding. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that, Em. Well, I must remind listeners, you are listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. In this first half an hour, it has absolutely flown by. I'm going to get on to our community announcements, which I only have one. So I'm going to um, put the word out to any gardening clubs or horticulture organisations, any sort of communities involved in gardening, if there's any events that you want to spruik, if you're looking for new members, if you want to just, you know, you've got something to say. Like Pam used to have, you know, a pile of papers in front of her for community announcements. Since COVID, that has really dropped back for us. So if you're still out there and you still have things to announce, like please send them through. Our email address is gardening at 3cr.org.au and that is the best way to get this information through to us so that we can announce it uh, on the Sunday show. So uh, once again, uh, Open Gardens Victoria have been very, very good to us. Next weekend, uh, there are two open gardens out in Gippsland. So Saturday the 6th and Sunday the 7th of May for these open gardens. The first one is called Tambreet. It's 33 Taylors Road in Cornella. Tree levels will be in raptures at Tambreet's wide range of unusual trees. The owner, Sean, has propagated most of the trees himself a um, number of primitive species such as bunya pines, ginkgos, sequoias, dawn redwoods, have I got anyone excited, um, are growing in the six-acre garden and some other rare trees such as American hackberry, uh, American ash, the dove tree. Oh, my gosh, I love dove trees so much. <laughs> um, Himalayan cypress are all spotted through the acreage which runs alongside the Tarelgan Creek. Uh, Tarelgan Creek. <laughs> Uh, and there's a wall of 40 shades of green rises up before you as Sean's trees give way to the borrowed landscape of the forest beyond. It's hard to believe the garden was ravaged by the Black Saturday fires in 2009 and it's been an inspiration to see how it's been rejuvenated and in full abundance again. Mm. So that's Tambreet in Cornella, which must be near Terelgan. That's near my hometown. Your hometown? Well, yeah, the big one. Yeah. Um, the left. I know, maybe I might take a road trip next weekend. Oh. Uh, the other garden that's open uh, in the Gippsland region next week is Renook, uh, 380 Thompson Road, Hazelwood South. So the garden is another inspiration after being revived uh, post the Black, Fire, Black, Black Saturday bushfires. Many of the beautiful trees that are displaying their autumn foliage have survived the fires from 13 years ago. The garden displays are full of sculptures and artworks created by the owners and family members and it features a large lake that supplies water for the garden. There's an enclosed orchard and substantial veggie patch as well. The garden also has its own hobbit house and numerous areas to have a picnic. Families can enjoy a walk along a one-kilometre bush track which winds through local bush surrounding the garden. 
this particular garden has many innovative ideas and solutions to tricky problems that gardeners will find interesting. Well, I think that would be an awesome day trip next weekend for people. So for both, uh, for each of these gardens, it's $10 for adults, $8 for students and under 18s are free. You can pre-book your tickets on Try Booking if you go to the Open Gardens Victoria website. And uh, as usual, they have donated a double pass for each of these gardens for our 3CR listeners. So if you want to jump on those, give us a call on 94190155. And I will open those that phone line up for anyone that wants to call in. And the text line, there's been a few text messages come in already. The text message... Uh, the text line number is 0488 809 855 if you want to send us a message. We've already had a couple come in, guys, and we've got a couple of emails to get to in a second. Um, Susie messaged in and said, Library on the Dock is on the corner of Collins and Burke Street, for anyone mm. that is wondering. <clears throat> um, someone has also said that there is a floating wetland installation in a pond at Woodlands Park in Essendon. So they're popping up. Um, ben Brooker was talking about biofertilisation earlier in the year on the show too. Okay. Um, it was an episode in March and he did recite the recipe for it. So if you go back through our episodes to when Ben Brooker was on in March, if you want uh, a recipe mm. for biofertilisation. I have a whole book of recipes they gave to us. I just should have brought it but I left it at work. <laughs> That's all right. Yeah. <clears throat> um, Actually, someone's asked if we can put it up on the Facebook page. Would you be able to take Absolutely. some photos of those and we'll pop them up on on Instagram and Facebook? Yeah, I'll do that tomorrow. Thank you yeah. very much. Yeah. Uh, that number again is 94190155 if you want to snap up the Open Gardens Victoria tickets. Now, we do have someone who is waiting very patiently on the line. Michael from Forest Hill, are you still there? Yeah, I'm still here. Uh, thank you for waiting. <laughs> yeah, no, I really appreciate. It. Just basically want to say, look, I, I, that what you're talking about, the um, the re re um, you know um, um, putting back what uh, was in the bioregions of of Melbourne. Yeah. Uh, it's something that I've been dreaming about for <laughs> years, yeah. and, and um, you, you've just you've just it, it, it's magic. It's totally. Mm fantastic to hear that's that's basically what i wanted to say oh good yeah thank you for calling yeah it's really encouraging to see um restoration environmental restoration happening yeah Yeah. absolutely absolutely incredible stuff so thank you oh you're welcome oh good (laughs) (laughs) thanks for calling up and saying that appreciate it see you later Okay, Bye. okay bye all right, let's get to uh, an email uh, quickly. Well, not quickly. Let's get to an email. So Bron from the southeastern suburbs has emailed about a lily pilly hedge that she's had issue with. Mm. So she had to remove a lily pilly hedge, which had uh, beetle damage and some disease damage that she thinks. The leaves had a whitish, silvery, mildew-like appearance, didn't want to spray it. It was... The hedge was 1.5 metres wide, faced north, got a lot of sun for most of the day, but um, some of it was in shade from neighbours' overhanging trees. Um, She has had to replace all of them 
and is planning to replace it with a mixed native hedge to provide habitat for small birds. Um, she plans to use prickly wattle, leptospermums, malaleucas, banksias and illyrias, mm-hmm. but asks us, can you please comment on whether you think the disease which affected the lily pillies will be a problem for the new plants or other natives? And we had a look at the photos that she sent to. So thanks, Bron, for sending those photos along as well. What do you guys think? We had a little bit of a discussion, didn't we? I thought, and it was only from the photos, that I actually thought it was all insect damage um, and that white residue was sort of like the leftovers, um, yeah. whether it's mealybugs, aphids or white fly or something like that. And it looked like it had a bit of burn on the leaves, but it was really hard to tell with the photos. Um, I mean, insects have been rife because of it the wet and it's been humid and that has been quite a big issue recently for the last few years. Um, I don't, you don't know if this is going to infect other plants, but I mean, waterhousia has, and lily pillies, scissorsiums, they all have quite a luscious leaf, which can be prone Mm. to things. So I think if you mix it up with quite a diverse hedge, that always helps because you're bringing in um, better species, a diverse range of species. When we're speaking even about the biofertilization course, like even putting in like a little culture like that, like we we're saying, it, it improves the plant health and helps improve the availability of nutrients for the plant. So it might be worth doing something like that. Yeah. I would also suggest, like, if you are looking into the hedge, you know, things like prostantheras and wastringias um, and things like that, because you can start to get, I find for some reason, I get a lot of. Um, um, praying mantis for some reason I've hmm. found and I don't know why but maybe it's just hanging around else. a particular plant yeah my wastringer for some reason oh. I, I give it a trim and it's full of them but maybe there's another maybe it's feeding off something else in there I don't maybe. know don't know but yeah, diverse diverse hedging is fantastic. And while yep. she's got the opportunity with the plant, with the lily pillies that have been removed, is to do some soil work. So whether it's yep. some of these yeah, more um, eco friendly, the biofertilization mm. products mm-hmm. um, or ingredients, uh, or just you know compost, 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 yeah. um, and organic matter, organic yep. matter, some leaf litter or whatever, and if you don't mix that into the spot, yeah. I was just going to say if you are closer. Um, if you don't have all those products, I always get like a three-way soil from Fulton's, which is like a manure oh, and okay. compost. I like is that it. a particular product that they have? It's called three-way soil and there's one called five-way soil. So five-way, I think there's three different types of manure and a certain type of compost, sand and soil. Yeah. So it, oh, it's, yeah, but it's really good. Yeah. It improves it. And all the plants that she mentioned would do well in that sort of mix, even though it's is, quite nutrient heavy, that'd be fine. I, I think the banksias might struggle in a mix struggle, like that, yeah. but the other ones will go, oh, rip a beauty. Like, yeah. I don't know this sort of nutrient level before. Yeah. I only, I don't put a lot, like it depends on how, what yeah, you have. Okay. Definitely work a little bit through. Yep. But if you want to improve. The other thing that Bron mentioned was that the hedge was in shade from neighbours overhanging trees at two ends, an ash and an elder. So maybe talk to your neighbours about giving those a prune just to open up the airflow yes, a little bit around, around I mean, there'll always spot. be a bit of competition or not a, a, bit, yeah. a lot of competition with the well-established trees. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Um, so, yes, hence doing a bit of soil work as well and uh, opening up a bit of a light yeah. um, and giving them a bit of extra TLC in their establishment phase. 
mm. um, will help kick them on. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, hopefully that's helpful, Bron, and all the best. Uh, another email from Anne from Northcote. Uh, she is asking for works for um, Uniting Care and at one of the community services they provide um, is uh, growing plants and, and propagating. She's asking for um, rose growers. I don't know whether you guys know any rose growers, but uh, Graham Sargent, who used to be on the 3CR Gardening Show, um, runs Silky's Rose Farm in Clonbanane, so it's a bit of a drive outside of uh, north of Melbourne. Uh, but they would be the people I would go to to chat about how to grow roses um, and uh, to, to get hold of some material as well. So, Anne, uh, get on to Silky's Rose Farm. Uh, Michaela, could you please just scroll the text messages down because one of our smart listeners um, sent in a text message quite early, about 20 minutes before the show started, to get in. So Lizzie in Geelong, um, you are up a bit too early for a Sunday morning. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Oh, actually, hang on, Lizzie, I've just seen a caller that's been sitting there for a while. We're going to get back to Lizzie and apricot trees um, in a moment, but we will say good morning to Max in Thornbury and stop you from waiting for too long. Hello there. Yeah, hi. Thanks, Thanks for being uh, patient. Oh, no, that's, that's fine. Um, look, I've got a couple of questions in regard to wicking beds and one um, about Charlie Carr, but um, I'm about to start making my first wicking beds. Um, I'd like to avoid using a plastic-based um, geotextile um, to separate the growing medium from the... Um, the wicking medium. Um, um, The the best thing I can come up with at the moment is like a coconut fibre matting. I'm wondering if um, you might have any other suggestions. Mm. Um, I'm just thinking that the the um, plastic-based geotextile is going to eventually fall apart and, you know, add to the microplastic loads in our soil. So... um, Mm was hoping to avoid that. Um, yeah, so I was wondering if there's any suggestions about something else that I might use yeah. that might last a bit longer than, say, the, the coconut fibre matting. Mm, you're, you're, no, not really, because right. you start going for um, those sort of breaking, like Natural. breaking down. Yeah, they, they all break down, and obviously yeah. it's, yeah. you know, you've got a bit of activity happening there. Um, mm. We use a geotextile fabric that's um, it's it, it's more of just a, a cottony sort of fibre. Um, where do we get that from? I don't know if it, if you can just buy it from Bunnings as well. But the coconut core that that does okay. It's just obviously you're going to have to go through and you know fix that up. What are you just you're using scoria as the base? Um, no, I've I've got some um, to make the water reservoir. Um, I've got some um, old plastic bread crates. Oh, yeah, I'm good. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. Um, yeah. Elevating, and then um, in several spots, I'll be having a, a wicking medium um, reaching right down to the, the bottom of the, 
of the water reservoir to so that water can be brought up. And that's the, my second question was mm-hmm. um, sand is like wash sand is the seems to be the one of the better things to use mm-hmm. for the wicking medium mm-hmm. um, because most of that is mined either from um, I'm, I'm hoping to, to use a recycled product. So I was wondering if anyone had heard of um, using recycled crushed glass that's oh. getting used to some extent in the building industries now as, oh. as a wicking medium, I've how never all used that it. works. Or, oh, yeah. Would there be a bit of silica? I mean, I mean, sand will have it in there too, but mm. I'd, 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 no, I haven't used a crushed glass at all. No, yeah. no, no. I haven't come yeah. across that one in particular in the, in the um, context of what mm. you wanted to use it for. I am thinking yeah. about yeah. your crates, though. Like, mm. you know, you don't like those sort of crates. You know, if you're thinking about plastics, you know, there's mm. a lot of sort of things that you can absorb through those crates. You know, yeah. Um, um, I, I had thought that they were actually approved for food contact. So my thinking was, well, it's probably um, on the lower end of risks to um, do that. I suppose it won't stop it from being fragmented over time eventually, but Mm. it's not like it's going to get moved around, so there won't be much friction to rub bits off. Um, But, yeah. 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 I mean, if if you've got other ideas. Well, I just look at there's there's – um, it's called biodegradable geotextile fabric. I mean, that's that's what we use on rehabilitation sites, um, mm. but they do go back to nature pretty quick. <laughs> so, yeah, but, yeah. So, what are they made of? Though it's that's, a that's, it's a jute, yeah. like a right. jute mat. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it's. Yeah. I mean, I don't okay. know the full composition. I probably should, but that's what we've used. No, yeah. 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 I, I, I did read that that. Um, the coconut fibre lasts longer than the jute. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. Um, the only other option I had to think, add into the mix was hessian, but that's along the same line as jute, so right. it won't. Yeah. 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 Um, being moist, it'll break down over time. Very... Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, my my other question, because I didn't hear the all of the um, discussion about um, um, Charlie carp only being like one percent carp. Mm-hmm. Um, and sort of greenwashing, I suppose. Um, just wondered where that information comes from. This um, was from the gentleman who goes all... His name was David. And again, I'll have to put this up on... I'll give Chloe the information on Monday. But he is a soil scientist and he goes all over right. the world. Um, okay. And they... Um, he, he does, like, studies on them. He also right. checks, you know, what the ingredients are in other um, products and they actually yeah. don't have to um, detail what's in the product. Mm-hmm. So you actually don't know what's in there. But, um, yeah. yeah, they found, like, the composition of Charlie Carp had quite a very low rate of carp compared to urea. Uh-huh. So, okay. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, all right. All right. Um, thank you. All the, all the best, Max, with okay. your Wicking Bear projects. Hopefully it's been helpful. Cheers. Yeah, thanks very much. Bye. All right, you are listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. My name is Chloe Foster and I have Stephen Wells, horticultural therapist, and Emmeline Bowman, landscape architect, in the studio with me today. 
Uh, Lizzie and Geelong, we're getting to your apricot tree question. So you have asked us, is it too late to prune an apricot tree? Uh, I heard on ABC radio yesterday morning that gamosis will occur. Is it dangerous for the tree? I really need to prune it so I can net the tree due to birds attacking the fruit when it arrives. Thanks so much for the best gardening show. Mm-hmm. So pruning apricot trees yep. at so, this time of year. Uh, well, so the interesting thing is they are now losing, like it's autumn, so they're losing, dropping their leaves. So coming into winter is the time to give them their harder prune. Um, so yes, we were discussing earlier about this and obviously you can do a lighter summer pruning um, in uh, the warmer months, but then in um, winter is when you can do the harder prune. Um, my dad, uh, we were talking about this before, my dad mm. has done a video, which was me just actually saying, <coughs> excuse me, dad, he was an orchardist um, and was just a video saying, what do you do? Here we are on an apricot tree and then Dad just shared. So I took that and then, and that's the precursor to say this is not a very d- a detailed knowledge that I recall. <laughs> the reason I videoed my dad was so that I could refer back to it. Yeah. But I do recall him when he does the pruning um, in context of the question, it's about the, he does reduce it mm. significantly so that it minimises the, the height of uh, ladder work or avoiding ladder work. Yeah. Um, so you can actually prune them down um, reasonably well to keep them smaller. So then you can net them easier as well. Um, the other thing that he would often do in that process, which I'm sure Lizzie's probably all across, is when you're reducing it um, in winter, the harder prune, um, you then have the capacity to put any sort of structure over it, whichever that may be, whether it's some polypipe or um, some of those aspects that give it some shape yeah. so then you can dra- drag over yeah. your um, netting when you need to do that yeah. and not get as caught in the branches yeah. and curse each other. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's so hard trying to net them. Um, apricots are tricky because they are susceptible to gummosis. Yep. Uh, I, I, have, I haven't got an apricot tree, but I, I do know that pruning, doing a lightish prune as soon as you've harvested the last fruit is often recommended, which is usually around February, yep. March, and then, yeah, a harder prune if needed. But yep. apricots are one of the stone fruit trees that don't need as much pruning mm. no. as, as some of the other ones. Yeah, so there's a little bit, um, the thing that I learnt through that process yeah. um, is obviously there's different types of buds. So you've got your fruiting bud and you've got your leaf bud, and it's important to know that you are pruning it not necessarily just for the next year, but you're pruning it for the year's beyond mm. um so it's about looking at where the new leaders will be um and looking at the buds learning about the buds to know which is discerned then which is leaf and which is fruiting mm. um, do you know which is yeah. which? not off the top of my head <laughs> oh. um, um the the fruiting buds are usually in clusters so multiples yes, and a little bit more swollen the leaf buds are usually singular and a little bit smaller okay so I know in peach, I'm not sure about apricots, but in peaches and nectarines, a single bud is going to be a leaf, but yep. a cluster of usually about three is going to be your fruit mm. per node. It's actually quite fascinating. Mm. You just go out and look at these sticks and you're like, oh, okay. So that 20 centimetres is all leaf buds. Yep. And that 30 centimetres of the two years ago growth, that's yes, all your fruiting buds. Yep. So you can sort of... So you can have a look at weed. And the important thing about that is also then knowing that along the length of the the branch, the cane, um, that 
yes, if you you discern those the difference between that, you understand then that you don't want a lot of the fruiting buds at the end mm. because that then will weight the tree down and that will put stress on the yes. branch and then that'll potentially snap off if yeah. it's not thinned out as you're getting all the fruit coming um, in that season. The videos of your dad pruning the fruit trees, have you put a couple of them on YouTube? Yeah, they're just up on YouTube. Yeah. Oh, How could Lizzie find that? Um, it, if you just looked up Ken Wells apricot pruning, yeah, you'll see it. And it was an apricot tree that he yeah. pruned. Oh, yep. Lizzie, get onto that video because mm. I think you'll learn a few things. And it makes me chuckle. It's funny because it's been well received and literally from a family point of view, I chose just to go... I want to get a record of Dad doing this because I don't have fruit trees. And one day I'll go, oh, I've got a fruit tree. I wish I could ask Dad. Dad's still with us. But at some stage in my life I'll be like, oh, I wish I could tap into that because I haven't needed to retain that knowledge. Mm. Um, And him being an orchardist, um, that was his everyday business as usual mindset. Mm, mm. So we literally just put the video, I had the phone, I think, and was just like, okay, Dad, what have we got here? And then Dad just proceeded to go through it, and I had the responsibility of zooming in and zooming out to yeah. where he was talking to. Um, so different. And it's just a really good thing. So as an aside, it's also a thing to go, who in your life does things mm. that you'd like to record or just to have a little story or just to mm. ask a few questions and hear them share their experiences? Yeah. So, yes, and I'm diverting a little bit off of the, the apricot <laughs> question, but it's just also that little prompt reminder yeah, sure. of who in our lives – can you do this with just yeah. to go, hey, this is pretty cool. Yep. Yeah. And you have that, that special information. Yeah. Do you know how my dad pruned all the fruit trees in our orchard? <laughs> <laughs> just hacked them. He put cows in there. <laughs> what? Oh, my God. <laughs> it's terrible. And the cows just ate them down. Terrible. They're <laughs> so... gone. They're actually like the bottom's clean. <laughs> Some of the apples are just broken. But they did clean it. And he's like. Should have done this before. Oh my god! Oh, <laughs> no science at all. Oh, that is I nothing. Think, typical I think dad. Using the word oh, prune there is, is kind of. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. um, but yes, hopefully that adds into the help for you, Lizzie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hopefully that helps. All right, there's a couple of text messages to get through as well. Um, Karen has asked. Uh, after a light pruning of citrus, a new growth is excessively leafy with masses of tiny leaves and the stems are misshapen and angular. No insect or leaf mine are present, but what could be the cause and anything that can be done to the citrus? What? She's pruned it and now there's excessive growth. Yeah. They grow, if you prune them at this time of yeah, year, time. they put on so much growth because of the warmth and they're just, Correct. this is yep. their... Just this is our active growth period. So is it the wrong time she's pruned it in a way or not? Because it's the leaves have come up smaller and the stems are misshapen. Tiny leaves, I wonder if anything's shot from the graft. Yeah. That's a possibility, but if it's coming from where they've pruned, it's yeah. the higher up. Um, I don't think there's any cause happened? for too much concern, but if there's a lot of growth coming up, you might need to thin it out. So yeah. when citrus trees do get a hard prune or a prune, they like they act. So many dormant buds are activated towards mm. the end of those pruning points, and um, you do need to thin it out sometimes um, if they've been pruned in active growth period. Yeah, unless it's just going to grow into itself because it's the start 
and then they'll sort of spread out. Yeah. But then you're you will have to thin it out because you're going to have all these stems coming out from one area and it's going to yep. it's going to make the plant a little bit un, uneven and hard to hold itself so you got to kind of look at the tree and or the plant and you know figure out how to thin out it like a bit like a haircut you don't want too yeah. much hair so you got to you know thin it out a little bit yeah yeah but you might need to wait till it puts on a bit more growth to see where these stems are sort of going and and how to correct it yeah 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 uh, okay. Oh, wait. Long message from Rosie in Mitcham regarding the land care. Mm. So a native Clematis aristata is proliferating in Melbourne's bushlands, but she's yet to find a horticulturalist who'll agree with her that it's doing major damage to the plants um, and uh, to uh, control it so that it doesn't outcompete Dianellas, Lamandras, and climb into wattles and trees. Um, That's a hard one because yeah, these are hard like, one. It, you know, I'll never forget working on this project, and it was a an area around Bandura near Latrobe University. And it was all predator-proof fencing and there was clematis and different types of saltbush, rigodia. And we had a lot of, um, I, I was surprised, uh, ringtail possums were actually nesting with their drays on the floor. Oh. So it, it then suggested to me that before we come along that a lot of our animal species used to be, you know, more closer to the ground in their nesting habits. And we're talking like bandicoots, everything, Right. So clematis has that sort of way how when you start to disturb certain areas that, you know, it grows as a mat, becomes like quite a big thicket. But if you actually think about the animals that live in these environments before we come along, they used to use this as, you know, that was their habitat. Yes, it can smother, but we've also got to think about how when we start, you know, uh, removing vegetation and things like that you're going to see a different hierarchy sort of come along mm. and as as things start to mature then that process of how it starts to um i guess balance itself in the environment so you know i, I yeah you're going to get different varying opinions all the time so you mm. can't really put a message out there and, and hope that someone's going to be on your side because there's too many factors that are part of that argument and you have to listen to them all and you've got to think about how that plant is actually working within the environment for those animal species as well. It might look unsightly or you might think it's killing some other plants but maybe it's helping some other species. Mm. Yeah, That's my take. Yeah, no, interesting <laughs> yeah. take. Mm. Um, the number to call if you want to join in for the show or ask us any questions is 94190155. I have Stephen Wells and Emmeline Bowman in the studio with me this morning. The text messages are coming in thick and fast. Uh, M. Adrian says that super crop compost from Fulton's is a fantastic product. Avoids adding any other synthetic soil additives. So It's very good. He really likes oh, it. Oh, Adrian. Yep. <laughs> yep. Um, David in Mount Dandenong, is it possible or desirable to have a small pond in a full shade or part shade area under a canopy of trees? Will any water plants grow there? He mm -hmm. said he has a channel of water runoff through the property and he'd like to capture that. Mm -hmm. 
um, in a pond that would have an overflow. Yeah, you'll definitely like your water ribbons, Cynogedon, Procerum. They they do very well in shaded positions. Um, there's a whole range. There's um, another plant called Mazus pumulo. Mm. Um, Hydrocotyls do really well. Um, a milfoil does do okay. They do like a little bit more sun, but you'll just find the habit that it grows will just be a little bit different. Um, and then, of course, mixing through like your carrick species and some juncus. Um, under trees, obviously, the biggest factor is a lot of leaf litter. So, you know, you might have to clean that out here and there. Um, but no, you, I mean, there's there's quite a diverse range. Marsilia mm. um, drummondi, which is this, the native nadu, is really nice around the edges as well and does really well. And it kind of brings a bit of light because they've got a bit of a silvery sheen about them. Oh, nice. Yeah, so that kind of makes it look a little bit brighter. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, well, yeah. I, I think my, my suggestion to David would be to get either – MU or mm. a landscaper in to help with that pond so that you mm-hmm. can get the water level, so you can get the levels right so yep. that the water can come and go yes. naturally and not flood out everything or do, yep. you know, do further, do any further damage. Yeah. Yeah. And that's so too. get Over, someone in. Overflows. Yeah. Yeah. Look yep. at how it holds. Yeah. And where you want that water to exit yeah. and come I was in. Hearing all about that yesterday. I was at an open garden, Victoria open garden in Park Orchards. Yes. Um, and a really interesting project because the house and garden were um, conceived and described um, as at, from the beginning stages rather than the house and then they go, oh, we want this to happen now, the landscape, as an afterthought. It was given the fact that there was a lot of pond work, rock work um, to do to uh, go with the lay of the land as well. Um, they did a lot of that before and then the house was built, and then obviously some other landscaping work after that because yeah. of access as well. Mm. But, yes, they were talking about ponds, um, so filtration this, systems, this overflows, was... all those really important things. Mm, soaks. Absolutely, soaks. Yeah, to make yeah. sure that the ponds worked, but then when extra water came in mm. from, over, from rain or um, uh, drainage through the site, that it could cope with it yeah. and manage that. So, yeah. That was, I was, I was learning a lot last night. Yeah. And so, but Emma, this was I the park on park. Yep. So we were talking about it on the show last week as well because yep. we had some tickets available from OGV for listeners. Yep. It's open um, today's too. It is. Yep. Yeah. So um, jump down to it. I, I did, was trying to get there yesterday, but I just couldn't. The, the walk in the Docklands took longer <laughs> <laughs> um, and I can't do everything. Um, you were saying, Stephen, that the – one of the really cool things about the design is they thought about the landscape before they thought about the house. Yeah, it was all mm. part of the process, as in it wasn't an afterthought. Oh, um, I love that. Mm. And it was the owner, the client, the, the couple, um, you know, understood that from the beginning, mm. which is, you know, as you you'd both I'd appreciate, so appreciate, is <laughs> like music to yeah, so ears to hear that, to go... It's really hard. <laughs> it doesn't usually happen. No. no. So it was really interesting. Now, it needed to happen with this project because there were some other really cool things, like there was a, a water feature river in the house yeah. under the floor wow um so you'd be very oh, alert fantastic. to the nuances of the, the challenges of that yeah um but it was really fascinating um to hear and it you know, that whole pro- huge aspect of people who are wanting to create a, a new build or do a new build but mm. have landscape designers architects involved mm. from the beginning to understand how the house, and this was a huge example because it literally was an open, 
mm. inside outside kind of feel and it, it, it just wouldn't have worked any other way because mm. it was overtly designed to be connected to the landscape um and you just go it makes it sings yeah. when you see that happen and it's also a lot more cost effective uh, yeah it would be <laughs> it is but then there's like because i get a lot of people who sort of come to me and they're like oh we haven't built yet but you know we want your input and you're like yes but the thing is the plans have already been done so there's yeah. always that yeah. side where they are still engaging you but the idea of what the architecture is already going to look like is already there and you're sort of like you can still make changes yep. but it's sort of solidified what because then you can sort of be like well you need to change all this area you know yeah. because but it's it's hard to go back and then, yeah, it's it's quite complicated. You kind of got to go before we do even the plans. Yeah. Let's do the landscape now. Which what? is interesting. Sorry to jump back in, um, because often people don't understand when it works. It works well. Like if you do it and you do it well, and you have everyone equally there. Yeah. Well, that's um, you un- you maximise your views or your vistas mm. or your sunlight or yeah. um, where the shade is and how that will impact. Um, the, and this is the other key thing that I think doesn't always get picked up is the feel of a space. Because mm. um, I not don't do a lot of design work, but it's the whole thing of I don't think people ask the question. Um, so I wasn't looking. I'm just oh. looking at you, engaging in the conversation. <laughs> just had to have a quick moment there, going, "I'm not talking to you." No, I'm listening. <laughs> um, uh, but the whole aspect of asking people, "How do you want to feel in your garden, your mm. landscape?" Um, which does Im- Im- impact the inside and outside context as well. Mm. But it's often just about, uh, well, I want something there for the kids. I want something there for the rubbish bins. We need a, a path to go through there and somewhere for the clothesline. And you go, no, no, but what do you want to feel like? When you're in your space, mm. like if you're designing your, your lounge room or your bedroom, you often are evoking those things of how you want to be mm. when you're in that space. Mm. But we don't necessarily talk about that as from the landscape point of view because it is a very emotional and evocative experience when gardens are done really well and you, you design them to be a spaces that you go, no, I just feel like I'm not in a house. I'm just, mm. A, mm. that sounds very obvious, but as in, or I just want to feel enclosed or I want to feel protected or I want to feel, you know, I want to be connected to the flora and fauna significantly. You can gauge that, I mean, depends when you speak with clients, but you gauge through their personality as well what yeah, they true. want. But, um, I mean, there's so much involved when you're designing for people. I know. And the builds, like in a perfect world, you'd have all your builders and all the landscapers and everyone all together <laughs> building and making landscapes. Yes. But then it's like, no, the builders are separate. Yeah. And they've got to wait and they can't have any infrastructure in the way because they're going to bloody yeah. ruin everything and you're just like, oh. Well, I'm the eternal optimist but with a strong sense of reality. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the optimist part of me is like, oh, yeah. exactly that. You yeah. want everything all aligning up. Yeah. And yeah. and you in a perfect world with certain people, you can get that sometimes. Yep. Um, but it is hard. You, the best thing and the, I guess the challenge that we all have to face is how to rectify problems in any situation. So, like, yep. you know, we just had a recent um, garden and I put it up on Instagram, which I hardly ever do, but it was all the water soaks and that was... Oh, my God. Uh, yeah, and that I was... I love that so much. Yeah, and that was to respond with water issues. And, you know, Bridget 
she had issues where it would absolutely flood and it went down. There was actually, there's actually like a flood overlay in the, and it would go underneath her um, massive um, uke and then into the neighbor's yard and she would freak out every time it would rain. So yep. we did all these water soaks. So we made it so there was these, you know, open area of aggregate and basically when the water would flow through, we would still follow the natural water course. Excellent, yep. But we would allow it to be like an open area. One, you can use it as a little fire pit area or whatever, but then it would soak up with water and it would disperse naturally into the soil yep. and, and, and water all the plants. And in the back part of the garden where the water used to pull right around the house, we did like a creek bed. There was a large open water body that always stays permanently wet and then it would flow off and when it used to go in and underneath the tree instead what we did is we channeled it down there was another water soak and an underwater cavity with scoria where the water would sit in there and then saturate the landscape and then we and it was really good because we got to use um rock mulch in the back and we used normal mulch in the front so it's becoming like a little bit of that thing where we're like this is going to be really good to watch how the plants grow in these different conditions. Yep. Mm. And Bridget did say if she had her time again, she likes the mulch, the normal mulch better, like the natural mulch better than the rock mulch. But the positive is her doggo doesn't dig holes in, the, in the back garden with the rock mulch. So that's <laughs> the positive. <laughs> and I said to her, wait till you just see everything grow because I go the rock mulch actually hold bit more warmth and now they've got that water to grow and you'll find that that will disappear and you're going to have a really nice even plant growth. See this is why you employ people who know what they're talking oh, about. Amen. <laughs> but that's rectifying after Correct. a build. Yeah. yeah but, you know, but that's yeah. your skills and your knowledge mm-hmm. is what makes that work. Yes. Yeah. Um, I, so, yeah. That garden was freaking was stunning. Cool. Mm. But what I loved about it is how the, is how you dealt with the water. You didn't put you didn't dig trenches and connect the drainage up to the storm water. Mm-hmm. You kept the water on site so that it could filter through. Because it's something I think about quite often is that there's because of storm water and drainage that we put in our built up areas, regional areas and suburban and city areas too, is water isn't soaking into the ground anymore so we're not replenishing Mm -hmm. our groundwater supplies now not necessarily going to be an issue in 10 or 20 years time this is sort of thousands of years Mm -hmm. sort of geological this is more of a geological time scale but our stormwater you know goes out into the river and i've sort of been thinking about it because i've been looking at these stormwater harvesting projects at Mm. fitzroy gardens and queen victoria gardens through work and just thinking about how we deal with water in our urban areas we push it you know we capture it put it into reservoirs and it's our drinking water not (laughs) not knocking that but you know we're not letting water soak into the ground anymore and we get heavy rain and people freak out that there's big puddles or Mm there a certain area of their garden floods and my mum and dad's garden the back corner in really heavy rain has always flooded but a couple of days later, it soaks in. Mm-hmm. So um, they've never done anything about it. Yeah, well, it's that's a natural soak. It's, it's nice. a natural, yeah, yeah, it's a natural soak. And mm. I love that instead of just putting in drainage pits and yep. diverting it away, you're like, well, no, let's keep it on site. Mm-hmm. Let's let it soak in, and that water is going to be soaking through the ground yep. and replenishing the groundwater stores, which yep. we do pull water from. Oh yeah, yeah. And I guess 
you make like a lot of people sort of see like, you know, an area that's low lying and they've got water that's soaking and they sort of see it as this muddy, boggy pit. And that was why we sort of transformed it to have a gravel base. So, you know, in a summer day, it, it can be a, a functional space. You can you can mm. put something on there. You can walk on it. Um, and it's easy to manage if you wanted to pull out if there is a little bit of weed or whatever. But, um, of course, these, you know, water issues is site dependent because, you know, yeah. there is there is really great initiatives in certain areas like, you know, the rain gardens and things. But we had one project where, you know, they wanted a rain garden within a, a space that was only 10 square metres. Right. And um, we... To, to do that with the fall of the the bluestone laneway behind it was nearly impossible um, and it was it was really hard. So we did like a rain garden on the bike shed, but it was on a roof, you know, in, right. and that worked fantastically. Um, we did a little bit of a soak in the garden itself. Um, but, you know, I, what I'm trying to get at is we need more initiatives where when one house can't obtain like a soak, we need it that either the landscape, a parkland or something compensates for it. Or, you know, how do we change development in a way that, you know, where yeah, we are naturally balancing mm. our water issues instead of it going straight into stormwater. If all of these houses are apartments and they've got tiny little spaces and they can't deal with the water because, you know, it's going to be overloaded when we have a downpour, mm. then that water should be channeled out and then into a parkland and we have the floating wetlands or we mm. have those places and we really need to think differently about how we're using yeah. water in our urban environments because it is literally um, the amount of water that's um, captured on your roof is the amount of water, um, what was it? It was like for every water that we drink, it runs off our roof and goes into storm water every time we have a rain event, the exact same amount that we're consuming or something like that. It's, right. it's huge. That's the so loss much water. is so much. And, you know, Melbourne and all cities are built on fertile floodplains. Yes. And we turn it into impervious surfaces and we channel that water into the, into the river systems and it just flows out into Port Phillip. It's a crime. Yeah. It's an absolute crime. It's a crime that we build infrastructure, you know, really close to water's edge. I always say it should be 500 metres to a kilometre away from any water system. And I know that's not going to happen now, but we really need to be thinking better about what we do with our water because I'm very passionate about how water works in our landscape and what we're doing in cities. It's really bad. Yeah. Really. Yeah. Like holding basins and things like that. You know, it's fine to prevent flood, but it's not actually working with the landscape. it's not. It's not an environment. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's like, oh. I, I do find it encouraging with, with particularly what City of Melbourne's doing, but your local councils that are They're, installing rain gardens. But, you know, but maybe the next step is these larger parkland areas is to have ephemeral ponds where yeah. we can divert water in, in heavy rainfall events so that it has somewhere to soak for a little bit. Mm-hmm. And if it's dry in summer or dry for half the year, well, that's, that's yeah. fine. Yeah, you see that in some of the new developments where they yeah. where they've got natural water bodies. Anyway, they were kind of they are cap, uh, capitalising on it mm. and utilising them as part of the open mm. space zones yeah. um, to capture runoff. But it's yeah, there's so much water that is wasted. Yeah, yep. but you're right. Like there are wonderful initiatives. I'm not downplaying that. I think there's great projects that are involved because they know it is an issue. Yeah, they do every yeah. 
councils yeah. understand. And I know the limitations of, you know, built environments, you know. But, you know, I think what gets my goat up a bit is when I see new developments and they are doing sort of wetlands, you know, and things like that um, with a domination of sort of junker species and, mm. you know. But it's it's sort of still a, it's still a holding basin rather than a soak. Yeah. And so that's where I wish that there is a bit of a change and I guess it just comes down to like who's going to, you know, bring that to the forefront of how do we start to navigate our new developments where the houses and the gardens all start to comp- like work together to move water into these and let it naturally work through the landscape again, mm. have these beautiful gardens. Think of that sort of utopia green city. Mm. But you can do it. Mm. Yeah. But it is going to be a little bit of time and a little – it can't be just fast infrastructure built up and that's where the problem is. Yeah. It's just timing. People just want it quick. Yeah. Yep. And that's when we fail. Everyone fails if you rush into things, yeah. no matter what you do. And if it's not, yeah, if it's not planned properly, there's, there's plenty of these sort of projects that look good when it's first finished, but it turns out turns out to be an absolute mess and the drainage doesn't yep. drain where it should and the water doesn't go where it should. Yeah. Um, but, the, you know, there's projects where they've retrofitted older areas to make them more, you know, water-friendly or to mm. turn it was something that used to be a drain and they've turned it into uh, a, a wetland now or something like that. There's the retrofitting projects. They they can they can work oh, yeah. if they're designed, you yeah. know, by people that know how to do it. And, yeah. Well, we reconstruct it. We're doing yeah. that to places, you know. Yeah. You find a problem and see the best way that you can navigate around it. And we can do it. Mm. Yep. But we can do it both ways. We can do it at the start or we can do it at the end. Yeah. But we do need time and you need to observe and you need to put the right process. And, of course, sometimes it still fails, but learn from it. Yeah. But we're all doing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You are listening to the 3CR Garden Show. Um, I have Stephen Wells and Emmeline Bowman in the studio with me this morning. We have a caller online who's been, again, waiting very <laughs> patiently. Anne, are you still there? I um, thank you. Thank goodness. I'm so sorry to keep you waiting <laughs> Not at like all. that. So interesting, and I'm totally on board with the water capture and you know more sensible approaches to how we yeah we just chuck so much good water away. Yeah. And um, yeah, so many hard surfaces. I think about some of those large um, retail complexes with flat roofs that you. You know, they would be such a good source of capturing water, mm. but all they do is, is drain it away and um, fill the car parks with concrete, and there's no mm. way that you're going to get, you know, good water capture there. So it's a shame. Mm. Um, so thank you for answering the question about um, the rose. I, could, I, was I wondered Graham, if that was but you. I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't think which Graham it was, and I couldn't get it. So yeah. I will I'll see what we can do there. But my question is, I've asked this before. I've got this tricky um, Potosporum hedge. It's an Irene Patterson. It's failing, so I've, I've decided I'm going to um, ditch it. And I've got a couple of things in mind. One is a clethra and the other one is a cudamundra wattle. Mm. Um, so I need about I need about six or eight of them and um, 
I would like to keep them as a uniform hedge. I do appreciate what you were saying about diversity in the hedging. Mm-hmm. Um, so the problem was uh, sooty mould and um, the soil's been really um, made poor, I think, by the potosporums. So I'd need to build that up. But what do we think about maybe Cootamundra wattle, which I think has got interesting foliage, how, how much width, how much room have you got yeah. width-wise for your hedge? Uh, width-wise, um, uh, 500. I wouldn't be putting yeah. a Cootamundra waddle a, in as a hedge. It's a big tree. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they okay. don't necessarily respond, well, they don't respond well to constant clipping to keep it quite narrow so 500 mil is quite narrow yeah um so i don't think you'll get the density that you're necessarily wanting or desiring how come you selected the acacia baleana was it a, the leaf color or another particular feature is that the cholesterol no, no the the cootamundra oh uh, yeah um it just had an interesting oh well i went to um cranbourne gardens and i was a bit more um yeah, I looked at everything and I thought, no, there's a small leafed um, option, a wattle, but I didn't really like the lack of um, interest in the foliage, but the cootamundra has got quite interesting colour change to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, because the Irene Pattersons are not that dull um, leaf that the, what is the other, the most common Potosporum is. I wanted that nice creamy variegation, you know, and the new sprouts come out really nicely coloured. And that's why I chose it years ago, but it's been more than 10 years. It's I think it's lived its life and it's causing... Mm. Time for some yeah. change. It's yeah. not well. Yep. I have to I, do something. I've got some plants here which yeah, I was going to talk... We haven't got to plants yeah. yet. <laughs> and I was going to talk about today, but... They are actually really good hedge options. Yeah, and I'm just thinking one of the ones you brought in, M, mm. is the Eucryphia lucida. Yeah. There's the gilt edge of there's a variegated Eucryphia. And it looks like a potosporum. Yeah. I, and it's a lot more slower growing. But it it's is. It's got a prettier flower. It's really pretty. And, yeah, it's yeah Eucryphia lucida. But this, yeah, the one that Karanga that I saw, yeah, a white trimming all around the leaf. Yeah. And I think if you like this variegated form, I think this would do really well. And you've got a shaded aspect too, don't you? Because the trees are overhanging. No. No, that was, that was the that other was another one. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, yes, yes. I had a street tree, but it got, um, it's destroyed. They're going to put another one up, but it'll take a bit of time to grow. They haven't done it yet. And um, what? So I've gone from having a quite shaded area. Well, it's a west-facing. Oh, it's so, west-facing. And it's no. clay. Um Maybe but not the Eucryphia. the tree no. will come eventually. It'll take a bit of growth. Um, Go, Stephen. I'm just trying to think of what would work that's going to be in a like uh, in that 50 centimetre sort of size, head there's, size. There's a Grevillea called Grevillea. Um, is it Candelabra or something? And it's like an upright Grevillea. Mm. And that might, like, I'm just thinking of your maintenance as well, like something that you know, you're not going to maintain as well. I mean, um, you know, they always say, like Tom says it at work and um, uh, I've just had a mind blank. But, you know, it, it's about having a slow-growing hedge. Yeah. Yeah. 
Craig yeah, says would, that too. Yeah. Um, I'd like it to be around uh, two metres eventually. Though, does that mean that I look for something that's be that will grow to a four metre height? Because I'll be oh. hedging it. Maybe look not no. necessarily four, but th- three, like three, three to two point yeah. five. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. either a, yeah. Something in that falls into the large shrub category. Mm. What do we think about a clethra? That's I'm, quite pretty. I'm, I'm not familiar with clethra. It's an exotic know. that I've heard the name of, but I'm not super familiar with it either. Yeah, I'm. Um, I'm the native. I'm, I'm mental. And I'm mentally yeah. walking through the large shrub section at Karanga <laughs> Nursery <laughs> with it's called and, a lily of the valley tree. You know that one, the clethra. Yeah, the common name. Does that make any sense? I, I no. think I think that would probably be suitable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, yeah, they're really nice. I think that would probably be suitable if you wanted to go with a clethra. I'm just wondering about the aspect, though. It's a lovely plant. Um, a couple more. I'm thinking of the prostanthera is a native mint. I was thinking prostanthera. Yeah. Uh, then you've got so many different varieties: rotundifolia, mosafolia, lazy anthus. If you like the white flower, the lazy yep. anthus is really nice. And Melissa. Are we speaking prostanthus? Prostanthras. Yeah. Yeah. It's a mint bush. Yep. And you get like a profusion, like depending on which variety you get. Um, you get a flowers. profusion of purple flowers, and if you go for lazy anthus, that's you know Christmas flowering, white flowering. Um, yeah. I'm thinking if you like the clethra and you like that sort of yeah, that white flower. There's also good. serrato petalum, the New South Wales Christmas bush, that would probably do mm, okay that would in that well. spot as well. Yep. Um, Even the westringias. Westringias do amazing as a hedge. Yeah, mm. they're a fantastic. Are they tall? They are. The, yeah. I've seen some at least two metres high yeah. as a hedge and being a, a fine leaf, yeah. they yeah. keep dense. They, that density is they there. They clip yeah, up really well. I know the Westringia. There's longer folia. I think it's a little bit taller than yeah. the Fruticosa species. Yes. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Um, Westring- I think if you want something like relatively fast but then stops, that, yeah, Westringias are good. I like them. And they're easy. Like yeah. if you, you trim them up, they're very easy to trim up. Yeah, yeah. And you like the All silver right. foliage, this fine yeah. silvery foliage depending. Yeah. yeah, with a bit of variety, you know, it's not just mono. No. Yeah. Well, it's got yeah. some flowers. Yeah. All easy. right, guys. All right. Look, take it, if you want to go natives, take a trip up to Karanga. They've I got so. an information sheet on um, plants suited for hedging and screening in their yeah. information booth and have a wander around the large shrub section and, mm. and have a, you can see yeah. the plants, have a look at the list and see mm. what you can find if you want to go down um, native route. Mm. Yeah. It's a go, isn't it? All yeah. right. Many thanks. No have worries. Fun, and a great program. So interesting. Thank you. Thanks Thank very you. much. Thank you. Cheers. Bye. 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 We're going to get to plants in a second, guys. Just a couple of quick Text messages. Lizzie from Geelong says, thank you so much for the apricot information. You guys are wonderful. Thank you. And a listener, um, oh, Michaela, can you just scroll down a tiny bit? Um, a listener has messaged in um, with some of their childhood garden memories, Stephen. Um, <laughs> the only plants we had were Petosporum undulatum hedge and a Japonica camellia. My father insisted on pruning the camellia every year when it was in bud. <laughs> <laughs> oh, which is a real yes. So just thinking about the hedging before, there's some beautiful flowers. 
But if you're going to hedge them, you're going to miss them. <laughs> yeah. Or pick you need to make sure you pick your time. So yeah. You've got to pick your time. Um, Kay from Nutfield, many thanks to Stephen for providing the YouTube details of your dad's apricot pruning video. It's wonderful. Aww. And another listener who would prefer their name to remain silent because they kill Rosemary. Um, <laughs> she had a great Sunday at the Yarra Valley Plant Fair last week. Um, oh. The stalls are really good. However, I was too embarrassed to ask this. I've killed my Rosemary, had it for 20 years right at the front door, gave it a light prune, and now it's dying off. What to do? Oh. Go out and buy yeah. yourself a fresh Rosemary yeah. plant. Yeah. And it is it is okay. Don't feel shame. Yes. We all have plants yes. that we kill and we go, oh, that just goes into compost now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And we, so, yes, Super there's no wife. shame in having a, a plant that you can't no. keep alive because yeah. pretty much every one of us has something like that. Rosemary is an interesting one because if you prune it back too hard, they do die. Yeah. So you well, need to leave. Wood, yeah. yeah. You need to leave foliage on it. So maybe you just went. You were a bit too enthusiastic, um, nameless. Yeah, jump and up, pop another one in. Yeah, get a fresh one. Pop yep. a, do, as we've been saying, pop some nutrient back into the soil in that area because mm-hmm. it's been depleted with that uh, previous one. Yeah. Um, give it a bit of food and ha- happily grow another one. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And there's a few different varieties of the rosemary too out now. Um, so you can. Yeah, there's ground covers, to... there's white flowering forms, and there's a few other different types. Yeah. Yep. Um, the number is nine four one nine zero one double five. If you want to call us, the tickets for the OGV Gardens in Gippsland next weekend are still up for grabs. If you want to take a road trip, so give Michaela a call and have a chat to her about it. I have Stephen Wells and Emmeline Bowman in the studio with me. We are going to get to some plants for the last fifteen minutes. Ooh. What do you want to start <laughs> with? Them? Fifteen minutes. I know it's flown. It has flown. Well. I did bring these because I was with you, Chloe, when I bought these, yeah. or one of them in particular. Yeah, and I bought one. I bought the same one at yeah. the same time. Yeah. So um, I have now. I haven't put them in the ground yet. No, so I. this is something I'm learning about everyone. So this was over a month ago. This is over. <laughs> yeah. See, we all have plants that we yes. can, Not that these are dying. These yeah. are looking very healthy. I can might add, but yes, we all have those yes. moments of oh, yeah. oh that looks good. Oh. Exactly. Now, where am I going to put it? I have it? a spot for that in six months. <laughs> yeah. And I but do, I want it now. Yeah, I want it now. But, oh, and I mean, this is, you know, we all experiment. We all want to learn new plants. So, um, Eucrophia. Um, I actually, I, Pink Cloud, and are they a type of leatherwood? I don't know their yeah, common they're name. Yeah, they're leatherwoods. They're leatherwoods. Yep. So, leatherwood honey comes from mm. the genus Eucrophia. There we go. Eucrophia. Thank you for correcting my. Oh, you can say it however you want. No, I'm going to say Eucrophia. Um, now, apparently, when we were talking, that these, it's a, they're a beautiful uh, shrub like, or this, the Eucrophia lucida is a tree. Um, it gets. I think it doesn't say it on this tag here, but it gets three to four meters apparently. Mm. Um, it looks like it does look like Protosporum. Um, it does now that you say it, and I'm a bit disappointed. The but or the... yes, but yeah. not in a, like it's not in a bad way. I think it's a really like if it grows in the form of it in a tree, it's really really beautiful. It's sort of got these ovate leaves, um, and I've got they've got really interesting buds. Like I find when the new stem starts. It, it's got like this little capsule like mm. bud and then that turns into obviously another branch and you've got a leaf set. But it's a very lovely uh, hedging variety. You could use it as a hedge, the Morii especially. 
Um, it's, it's got these beautiful little white flowers, um, a very clean looking bush, uh, but it does need a cool, moist environment. You're not, yeah. you, you need to be somewhere like say maybe in Caulfield or, you know, or for us, um, you know, out near the Dandenongs or places like that. So or a south-facing wall. South-facing wall, something yep. quite protected and yeah. moist and, and cool. But that's really exciting because it's a native variety that you can put into a, 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 an area like that yeah. rather than, you know, some of your other more common varieties. So, yeah, Eucrophia morii. Um, so the morii has a beautiful compound pinnate leaf, if that means anything to anyone. So mm. it's not a regular Moist. single, like solitary no, it's leaf. It's a bit It yeah. is. Yeah, but sh- shiny green instead mm. of more the dull green that a lot of the that some of the grevilleas have. I love the flowers of Eucryphias so much. They're really nice. So they're in. Oh my gosh, I've just gone blank. I'm not going to say what. <laughs> I'm not going to say morning. what family they're in. What plant family they're in? But they have these on the morii. They're probably about two to three centimeters in diameter. Mm-hmm. Big white petals and then quite showy stamens yeah white stamens as well they're quite spectacular they're very nice absolutely beautiful and the the lucida species has the same shape flower but it's a little bit smaller yes and this is a pink flowering form that's right mm. so i think um a few weeks ago Stephen ryan was talking about the lucida he was talking about the variegated one that was we mentioned he? before yeah but yeah there's also this pink flowering one mm-hmm. and karanga stocks lucida quite um, all the time. Morii is something that they get in every now and then, mm-hmm. but it's always available. But it's one of those plants that doesn't look great in a pot immediately, yeah. but it's a fantastic garden plant. Mm. It's And they're a, sort of, they're a small tree. Well, this is why you buy it and you put it in your garden and you learn its growing capabilities mm. and then we start putting it into your garden. <laughs> and, and that's all part of the other, learning. Absolutely. The other thing, I always remember when I was doing my horticulture studies, I loved going to places like the Botanic Gardens mm. and other established gardens, largely because you, you see trees that are established mm-hmm. and shrubs that are established, and you go, ah, cool, you yep. look good. Mm. Now I know what you'll grow yep. to. So it's very much about that learning process as well. And so seeking out, Gardens, yep. nurseries that have some sections that are growing plants on as well. Yeah. And you get that um, opportunity to go, oh, yep, you are what I want. You look nothing like that in the pot. Yeah. But I do want that. So, yes, I will get that yep. pot because I now know what it will grow to. Mm. Um, so, it's, yeah, great learning opportunity. It is. And that's the thing with plants. Like, you know, you really you really value people and their expertise because it's a lifelong journey to learn these things. Yep. Yeah. Honestly, it is. It's yeah, we're never going to stop. You'll never stop. No, you should never. Yeah. <laughs> I did want to... Well, we need to stop to rest. Well, not, not oh, learning. Yeah. never learning. stop learning. Yes. Everyone, yes, we need to stop to rest. We can never stop. Um, now, I don't know if I brought this in before, but I, I'm always talking about this. You love this plant. I love this plant. I just think it's just so good. It's Isotoma axillaris. I bang on about it all the time. It's an indigenous plant. It's also found up sort of into um, the northern regions, like Shepparton, Boho. I see it growing out of oh. granitic outcrops. I was going to say it's a perfect rockery plant. Well, it's called yeah. a rock isotome, everyone. So you know, but um, flowers you, look stunning. It, oh, and it's flowering yeah. now. It flowers all the time. You can trim it back, and you know, it'll just 
keep producing. It, it it does if it gets dried or die back, but it will come. It does come back really well. It seeds prolifically. Yep. So you can scatter the little seed head after the flowers finish. You'll see that it's got a little capsule, and you'll get you know a good fifty seeds out of each capsule. Nice. If you put them in your pots, which I have done, it's just seeds in all your pots, but I kind of like it because there's beautiful purple flowers. Yeah. Bees love it. Blue-banded bees love it in particular. Excellent. Um, The only downfall is do not get the white sap in your eyes. It hurts a lot. So for people with kids and things like that, unless you want to deter them. (laughs) But but I would say be very careful with the white sap. Um, It's still a beautiful plant. Um, but maybe just let them know it's not dangerous. I mean, it just it's, it's very lots irritating. Of that we have in the garden that have sap in, and that's it. Yeah, yeah. So don't. So unless they're like literally, if they're the sort of kid that picks, yeah, and yeah. rips things off, then yeah, yeah, so potential the, to flick. So the flowers are this nice mauve, mauvey pink. Yeah, and star shaped, and about a fifty cent piece kind of maximum yeah, yeah. size. Yeah, um, as in to the edge. Yeah. Um, and I really like the, the foliage because that's really um, fine. Mm-hmm. Is that so? We're looking at it in a tube stock pot here. Yeah, is that similar to then what it will grow it, and retain as it, it gets bigger? It actually. So this will probably be the maximum height it gets. Yep. So this so plant about, here, we're about thirty centimeters tall great. maximum. Mm. Um, in a this is in a tube stock, so yeah, it's growing upright. But usually, it has a really rounded form. Nice, and it's quite thicker and denser. Um, the more you cut it back the thicker it will get um but uh yeah i don't know it's got very beautiful fine foliage full sun full sun it can do okay in part shade um in fact when you find it it's under forest floors so you you can when i say that dry forest floor um and it's it is eaten the 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 foliage is delicious i think it's kind of a a little bit like um um milk milkweed Okay. And I think that's like the white sap, but you you do find that if you do have rabbits or something, you're not going to have a good time with these. They so will eat them. Mm. Yep. Um, but, but yeah, I could also see it in a cottage garden. It doesn't look like I a use native it plant all the time in cottage gardens. Yeah. That with the um, Veronica arenaria, Wallenbergia, Chrysocephalum, yep. oh, love it, and that purple yellow combination, oh, stunning. Yep. and then it seeds. Seeds mm. with the Wallenbergia. So you just get constant flush. Flush, yep. nice. flush, flush. Excellent. Yep. Beautiful. Restorative. Anyway, they're my flowers. I've got more, but I think we're running out of time. We are running out of time. We've got we've got time for one more plant that you brought in. Well, which one? Do we want to go for the acacia pendula or the nematolepsis? Let's go for the acacia. Done. For people in a slightly different environment to where the eucryphia and nematolepsis will grow. I agree. <clears throat> so this is hot plant of stem at the moment. So we love – well, the thing is, like, you know, when you're doing wetlands and things, you, you don't want willows, but you yeah. want that willow-looking thing. So besides Gagera and things like that, we've got now the Acacia pendula. So, hang on, would you plant these close to a water body? No. no. So you wouldn't plant like a willow? No, I wouldn't, but if I wanted something that's a little bit de- – obviously depending on your environment. Yeah. So we do have some places that are sort of out rural and they've got a bit more of like a sandy loam soil. We can put it there. Um, but this is a really lovely small tree, for, especially for inner Melbourne gardens. Um, so – it is acacia. It can be a little bit faster growing, but it's a beautiful tree with weeping silver foliage. Mm. 
Um, I think it gets to five metres. Acacia pendula, which pendula, is quite yeah. a, a apt species name. Yes. Sorry, I'm creative I'm, with our names, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm, yeah, so I'm a little bit wrong. So I've seen them at five metres, but they range between six and 12 metres and their width is between six and eight metres. That's so very varied. It is a very varied. So it depends where it's growing. I, Basically, I, that's what that says, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So in a really good spot, it's going to yeah. do real well. But, yeah. I mean, I've seen them on a streetscape um, going up down um, uh, West Melbourne and mm. also down towards Point Cook, actually, they're weirdly. They're fantastic plant for Western Melbourne. And it looks so good. Yeah. And they're just a stunning tree. Um I just think if you're looking for something with that weeping habit, silver foliage, nice dense canopy, um, just a really elegant tree, mm. small tree, this is the one. And I just would like to plug it because we're always like, why isn't it used more? It's such a nice yeah. plant. I've, I've seen it growing in gardens and street trees around Mildura in West and far, you know. Mm-hmm. Inland Western Victoria too, which is I think it's from somewhere around South Australia, like inland I'm, South Australia, I'm up that way. Haven't checked where it's from. I think it's I naughty. think it's somewhere up around there. Yeah, and they're just beautiful. The silver, the weeping silver mm. foliage is stunning, and a oh, is it a pale lemony coloured? I think it's flower. a pale yeah. coloured flower in comparison to some of the other is. wattles, which is really quite nice. It's a very delicate feminine tree. I yeah. Think. <laughs> Pretty, isn't it, Stephen? I wouldn't say pretty, as in, <laughs> I do, but, a, a, but we describe things how we, I know. how we see them, which is perfect. <laughs> yeah, I think it's very graceful. It is it, graceful is the yeah. best way to say. Yeah, yeah. It looks stunning. The, the picture of on the tag here. Yeah, um, I'd plant one if I had space. Oh yes, the yeah. space. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> we have come to the end. Yeah, I know. Yeah, of our chat today. Oh. This is one of the quickest gardening shows I've ever been a part of. There's some beautiful plants you've brought in, Em. <laughs> Thank they you. Um, someone has just sent in a text message. Isotoma axillaris is the purple flower that yep. Em was talking about, that it is good for cottage gardens. And you can get that from La Trobe University, Indigenous, Indigenous Nursery. Nurseries. That's where I get it. Yep. Um, Western Plains Floor up in Wildwood. Cool. Vink. I'm sure a lot of places have it. Yep. Yep. Great. Thank you both Pleasure. for your time and knowledge today. It's been wonderful. Thank yeah, you. it has been wonderful. Appreciate it. Thanks, Michaela, for producing the show. Thank you, Thank you to Liz for doing our socials you, and Liz. Karina for the podcast. Have a lovely Sunday, everyone, and we'll be back again at 7.30 next week. See ya. Bye. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. 